Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this new year um, that we can gather and worship you, Lord. We thank you for sending your son as we celebrated last week with Christmas uh, to live and die for us, Lord. Um, And we just uh, thank you also for sending the Holy Spirit to indwell in us. Uh, Holy Spirit, may you illumine this word for us today, and may you open your eye, open our eyes to the truths that uh, we confess. I just pray this in your name, amen. As may be seated. <clears throat> so, uh, I don't think this is going to be much of a hot take. It'll probably be the most mild take you've ever heard before. But I'm pretty sure we all like good endings, whether it be in books, TV shows, movies. We want to see the main characters get together. We want to see the women get defeated. We want to see the world be saved. That's just in our nature. We want a happy ending. Um, And even though endings that are good are great, we would prefer them to be happy. We don't like sad endings or just mediocre endings. A movie that I really enjoy is Roman Holiday, which is a romantic comedy from 1953. Uh, I apologize in advance that I'm going to be spoiling the ending to a 70-year movie for you guys, but uh, just spoiler alert here. So uh, if you've never seen the movie, it stars Gregory Peck and Aubrey Hepburn. Uh, Gregory Peck is a journalist, and Aubrey Hepburn is a princess who's in Rome, and she does the first half of uh, the movie Aladdin where she pretends to be a normal person so she can go and explore Rome as just a commoner. And uh, Gregory Peck, of course, knows who she is, and he's kind of playing along as her tour guide, and they end up falling in love. But that's not how the movie ends. It doesn't end with them getting together. The movie ends with uh, Hepburn revealing she's a princess and going back to her princess duties, and she ends up giving a press conference that uh, Gregory Peck is at. And they end up talking for a little bit. Uh, You can see that they love each other and they want to be together. But he's a journalist, she's a princess. The movie ends with her walking off stage right, him walking off stage left, the screen goes black. It's a great ending, it's how the ending should be because it's the realistic way, but honestly it kind of sucks. I really wanted them to get together at the end of the movie. I wanted her to pull a Prince Harry and abdicate the throne for her love. I wanted the king to come in like Aladdin and change the rules so that she could marry this journalist. That's how we want our movies to end. I think about uh, Peter Jackson's Return of the King, and he loves happy endings so much that he put seven in the movies, which, as someone with a small bladder, it's very hard to uh, sit that long for that many endings on the movie. But even then, Peter Jackson changed the ending. If you've read the books, uh, you know that at the end of Return of the King, the Shire is destroyed. Uh, uh, Saruman goes in, and he decimates the Shire. 
it's a very sour note that the book kind of ends on, but Peter Jackson took that out so that we could have a happy ending. And that's what we want in our own lives. And uh, with this new year here, we often uh, hear new year, new me. And we think this year will be my year. This year will be the year that life will be better for me. This year I'll get my happy ending. But how often is that really the case? How often is it that we still have health issues? We still have stresses at work, stresses at home. We still have sin that's in our lives from the previous year. How often January 1st, does January 1st come along and we say, I still can't believe I have to deal with this. When is my happy ending going to come? Well, in our passage today, I think Paul realizes this and wants to uh, emphasize that our happy ending doesn't come from this world. It doesn't come from our restart on New Year's, but ultimately our happy is struggling with a myriad of issues. There was a man sleeping with a stepmom, the congregations had a hierarchy of spiritual gifts, and the poor and the rich were not taking the Lord's Supper together. And that was just scratching the surface of their issues. It was not a healthy church. And yet what our passage today that ends of the second letter says, uh, isn't Paul saying, hey guys, you need to fix these uh, issues before you can get these blessings. He's saying that these blessings come to you from God, even though that you aren't a perfect church. He does tell them, hey, you need to fix these things. These are big problems. But God's grace is still with you, even in all of your mess, even in all of your sin, even in all the troubles that we have. So when we look at God's love and we look at these promises that we're given, we're given the grace of Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's not something that just happens to us when we first become a Christian, but it's something that stays with us for our entire lives. I often am on Reddit and go on the various Christian subreddits there. And to be honest, it makes me a little sad when I go on there. Over half the posts to me seem like something along the lines of, help, I prayed wrong and I've now committed the unforgivable sin, or help, I accidentally uh, said God's name, I mispronounced his name, and now I feel like I'm going to hell. Am I actually going to hell? Does God still love me? And I don't think I, we should shame people or look down at people on the, who have this sort of lack of assurance because I know I have those moments in my life too, and I'm sure some of you guys have those moments too. But I think when we really see the beauty of God's love, when we really look at our passage today and see what it means for God's love to be with us, those moments of weakness, those moments of fear should just disappear from our lives because we can see how big the grace of God is. In theological terms, we often talk about the perseverance of the saints or eternal security. And this idea just means that once we're saved, once we're truly in Christ, we cannot lose our salvation. And it's something that's very beautiful and something I hold dear in those moments. And it's something we see Paul talks about in Philippians 1.16 when he tells us that he, being uh, Christ, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We can rest easy knowing that God's love for us is so great that uh, it would not even take our sins for, us, for him to forsake us. Now, as I read today's scripture passage, I'm sure there are some of you that are thinking, wait a minute, this passage sounds familiar. Is church already over with? If you've been attending for uh, Liberty for any length of time, you'll know that this is part of our weekly benediction. It's the verse that closes our service and at least concludes the part of the service uh, where we do our live streaming from. 
It's uh, the very verse that Paul ends his letter. And as one commentator uh, says, he concludes this letter without his usual greetings, but with a beautiful benediction. I enjoy the liturgical rhythms here at Liberty, but if I can confess, there are days and times in the liturgy that's just become routine for me. Now, I'm not reflecting enough on the parts of the liturgy that we do. This became particularly hard during the pandemic, where for over a year I was just staring at my TV screen or my phone screen. In fact, uh, this became even harder when my uh, son was born and the end of the service is when his nap time is and so I'm dealing with a fussy child. I'm hungry for lunch. I'm not thinking about what this benediction means or why it's important for us to say each week. And what our benediction shows us today is it shows us this Trinitarian love that God has for us. But maybe a few definitions to start. We want to define who is the Trinity and what the heck is the benediction. So who is the Trinity? The easiest definition of the Trinity is that within the one being of God, there coexists three eternal being, persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. In other words, we believe that there is one God and three persons. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. They're separate and distinct, but still one God. Paul, in this passage, shows us that our relationship is not to just the one person of the Godhead, but all three who are each active in our salvation. Theologians will often call this the covenant of redemption. And what this means is that in eternity past, the Father, Son, and Spirit came together and said that the three of them will work together to save their people. Can you just imagine what that means? That in eternity past, before the world was created, God knew your name. God loved you. God sent your son, his son to die for you, and the spirit to rest in you. That should give us comfort. That should give us joy in our lives. But what about the benediction? Is the benediction a prayer? Is it the ancient equivalent of a fist bump goodbye or a text saying, talk to you later, alligator? Uh, Derek Thomas, the theologian, said, a benediction is a blessing. It's a gospel blessing. It's saying to the people of God, now you've worshiped. You go out to the rest of the week to work and labor. Go in peace. Go with the blessing, the assurance of God's covenant promises upon you, that he will never leave you nor forsake you, that you are Christ's and that you will be Christ's forever. You may experience trials and difficulties this week, but you are covenant children underneath the umbrella of covenant blessings. You are not under the covenant curses. So remind yourself that you're under the sunlight of the gospel this coming week. In other words, this benediction is part of the service that reminds the people of God, reminds the church, that our hope is in Christ and him crucified. That was preached in the sermon, sung during our worship songs, and partaken during the sacraments. With all the struggles and issues facing the Corinthian church, Paul reminds them that ultimately they are the adopted sons and daughters of God. And nothing can take away from those beautiful promises. So from here, we're going to talk in three parts. One, we'll talk about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two, the love of God. And three, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. I do love when Bible passages just easily define themselves into three-part sermons. It's very helpful for me. So first, looking at the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's through this grace that we've been saved. It was the shedding of his blood that we have redemption and are reconciled to the Father. Jesus accomplished this through his life, death, and resurrection. 
As we shall see, Jesus lived the life that we can never live and died the death we rightfully deserve. In the book of Romans, Jesus is spoken of as the second Adam. Adam was, Adam was given a command, which he failed, and through him sin entered the world. As we've been going through this Genesis series, we've been able to see the effect of his sin, the murder of Adam's son, Abram lying about Sarai's identity, and so much evil that God had to flood the world. And we even see these effects today. Our world is broken. War, famine, pestilence, hatred, anger. And yet, when Jesus came off the scene, things were different. Unlike Adam, when Jesus was tempted, he did not fall. He remained faithful. Those 40 days in the desert, at the end of his life when he's praying in Gethsemane, he stayed faithful to God. Jesus lived a sinless, perfect life. And I don't know about you, but even on my best days, I'm sinning constantly. And yet he lived without sin. But as Paul mentions earlier in Corinthians, Jesus did not just live the perfect life, but he also took on the full wrath of God for our sins. It's hard to fathom the love for Christ has for us. The second person of the Trinity, the infinite and eternal God who created the entire universe, entered into time and space. He felt sickness, hunger, and pain just for our sakes. I can't even imagine what that would be like to be God eternal and then for 33 years live as a human with a frail body that could be and ultimately was broken for us. He felt these things, and at the end of his life, he was tortured, mocked, abandoned by all of his friends, and hung on a cross, made a curse for us. The anguish on that cross that Jesus must have endured while feeling the full wrath of God is unimaginable. I don't think we'd ever be able to describe what fully happened that day and all that Jesus went through. And yet when we think about why he did it, he didn't do it for some unknown reason. He did it for his love for us. He did it because he wanted to save us. His death and resurrection means that we have grace and it's unmerited. We did nothing to deserve it. In fact, the Bible tells us that we were God's enemies when he died for us. But here's the thing about that grace. That grace has no bounds. There's no limit to the infinite grace that God gives us. When we do our uh, liturgy, we have our call to confession. And in our call to confession, we have the words of assurance. I can't imagine what church would be like if we didn't have those words of assurance afterwards. We'd be left sitting there, sitting in the weight of our sin. In his book, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, who's not to be confused with his giant brother with the big blue ox, tells the story of a man named Christian in his journey through life. At the beginning of the book, Christian is reading a book while wearing a heavy bag on his back. While reading this book, the bag falls off and his burden is lifted. He's overjoyed and shares the news with everyone. Now, John Bunyan was a simple man. He did not believe in complicated analogies. His character, aptly named Christian, learned about God's grace by reading the Bible. And his burden that was lifted, the bag on him, was his sin. And that's why the words of assurance every uh, Sunday are so important to us. They remind us that no matter what we did that week, God's love is for us and he will never forsake us. Paul beautifully concludes Romans chapter 8 by saying, 
For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything in all of God's creation would be able to separate us from the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's using exhaustive language here to show us that nothing, nothing in the universe can ever make, make Christ's grace null and void. And you know what that means? That includes you and I. There's nothing that you and I can do, brothers and sisters, that can make us lose God's love. Even if this does not become a new year, new me for you, you still have God's grace. You still have the grace from our Lord Jesus Christ. So now, on to the love of God. I think the most famous verse in all of Christendom, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You guys ever stopped and thought about what a beautiful sentiment that is? What a beautiful notion it is to know that God the Father loved us so much that he sent the eternal Son to die for us, that he put his full wrath upon the Son for us. When we look at the Old Testament, we see this throughout the Old Testament. And in Hebrew, there's this word, has said, which often translates into steadfast love. But English is not a great language and doesn't fully capture the beauty of this word. It talks about his covenantal love, and it talks about how this love that he has for us is an essential part of his being. The author A.W. Pink says this about God's love. It's not simply that God loves us, but he is love itself. Love is not merely one of his attributes. It's his very nature. And we see this love beautifully explained in Exodus 34. In this passage, God passes before Moses, and we hear uh, an ex exclamation about who God is and whose attributes are. And in verses 6 and 7, it says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, so to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Twice in this passage, God is described as having has said, Steadfast love is for his people. And this promise includes you and I. God is unchanging. The promise and the steadfast love he gave to those people on Mount Sinai thousands of years ago is the same steadfast love he gives to us today and he'll give to us tomorrow. And we see this throughout all the prophets. If you've never read the prophet Hosea, it's a pretty wild story. Hosea is told by God to marry this woman, Gomer, and God tells him, by the way, Gom uh, Hosea, Gomer's going to cheat on you a lot. And you're not going to forsake her. In fact, she's going to run away from you constantly. And you're going to come back and redeem her over and over again. And that is what God does for us. When we sin, we're running away from him. We're running away from the cross. But like Hosea and Gomer, he doesn't just abandon us in our sin. He comes and draws us back to him. When we see this, we see even all the way back in Genesis. Eric and Jim both preached on uh, Genesis 3.15. I recommend you listen to both these sermons. Where Eve is told that her seed will crush the head of the serpent. And the serpent uh, will bite the heel of the seed. And we all know, obviously, that head injury is worse than a foot injury. And what's amazing to us is that even in Genesis, right in the middle of the fall, God is showing the steadfast love. He's reminding us that 
We are his forever. We know that we makes this covenant's promise again to Abraham, and we'll see it in future to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to David. And ultimately, all of these promises culminate in Jesus. God made this promise to us as well. No matter that uh, what sin you've committed, what wrong you've done, that promise is still to you. Hebrews 6, 17 and 18 tells us that God desired to show more convincingly the heirs to the promise, the heirs to the promise being us, the unchangeable character of his purses, per, uh, purpose. He granted it with an oath so that when two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, he who has fled for us might have a strong encouragement holding fast to the hope set before us. Brothers and sisters, we are the heirs to the promise. When God made that covenant, he could not break it. It's impossible for God to lie. This should bring us joy and peace. This should give us hope. He knows your name. He knows you personally. The beauty of salvation is it's not some cold, unfeeling legal contract. It's a personal, loving covenant made to each one of us individually. Even this language of adoption that we see throughout the Bible is filled with the love of God. When uh, we have friends, and I have some friends who have adopted children, when they talk about their children, they don't create categories. They don't say, well, these children are my biological children, and these are my adopted children. No, they talk about these are our children. They don't make distinctions, and God does not make that distinction either. We are his adopted children. We are loved by him. As J.I. Packer says, to know God's love is to know heaven on earth. But what about the Holy Spirit? Paul tells us that we have, the, uh, we have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Now, some translations will say communion with the Holy Spirit, but it gives the same idea. Herman Bovink, who's a 19th century theologian, had this to say about the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It is through the Spirit that we have fellowship with the Father and Son. It is in the Holy Spirit that God himself, through Christ, dwells within our hearts. Since the Holy Spirit is the one who indwells with us, it is God himself who indwells with us. And it's through this indwelling that we can even commune with the Father and the Son. This should really impact us when we think about our prayer life. Because it is through the Spirit that we pray. And it's the Spirit who intercedes in us, for us, in our prayers. When you don't know what to pray, when you're so broken in your sin, know that the Holy Spirit is praying for you and talking to the Father and the Son for you. There is no aspect of our life in which we see God abandoning us, and this should give us comfort. The night that Jesus died, he warned his disciples that this would be their last time together, and they were obviously a little confused. This person that they've been following for three years, that they put all of their trust and hope in, said, well, see ya, I'm leaving. But he gave them a promise. He said, I'm not going to abandon you fully. I'm going to send the comforter. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit with you. And while they didn't fully understand what that meant that day, on the day of Pentecost, they realized what that meant. And the Holy Spirit that was promised to the apostles 2,000 years ago is the same Holy Spirit that is promised to us and that comforts us in our time of sorrow. Moreover, it's through the Holy Spirit that we are sanctified. Sanctification is the process of becoming more like God. The Bible tells us to run the good race and fight the good fight. And even though on this side of heaven, that will never happen. We'll still be sinners. 
we're still called to be more and more like Christ. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit that he does within us. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Paul tells the church that they need to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for our good pleasure. Well, yes, we must flee from sin, flee from temptation. Know that it is the Holy Spirit within you that you're able to do good works, that you're able to flee from the sin. So when temptation calls, when temptation is pressing against you, lean on the Holy Spirit, fall back on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit also helps us with our eternal security. In John chapter 10, we are told by Jesus after he says that he is the good shepherd. He tells us that he holds us in our hands and that not only he holds us in our hands, but that God the Father holds us in our hands. And in Ephesians, we're told that we are sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit and we are guaranteed our inheritance um, to the praise of his glory. So as one pastor of mine once said, we're held by the Father, we're held by the Son, and we're held, sealed by the Holy Spirit. That should give us comfort. That should give us joy, knowing that all three persons of the Trinity are loving us so much, so unconditionally. Now, in ancient times, seals were placed on important documents. And what it meant was that only the person who had the seal could actually break the seal. Well, if it's the Holy Spirit, if it's God who put the seal upon us, it's only God who could break that seal. And we know that God's promises are never broken. That seal will never be broken for us. So it's no wonder that, as I mentioned in Romans 8, Paul tells us that there's nothing in the universe that can separate us from the love of God. This same Trinitarian expression is expounded upon Paul in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, which I just quoted a part of. Time doesn't permit us to dive into that passage this morning, but when you go home, I recommend you reading it. The passage is one run, uh, long run-on sentence. Paul did not like punctuation, which our English uh, does have, but Paul dives very deep in these verses of the love of God, the grace of Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit that seals us and guarantees us for our inheritance. So each week as we say our benediction, I want you to remember Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 and hold on to the promises that are there. When we have these moments of feeling alone and feeling in sin, especially during the pandemic, when we were alone, when we we're stuck locked in our houses, and even now sometimes if we're at work or alone at home, know that we do have a great crowd of, cloud of witnesses that show us that our eternity will be with God. Hebrews chapter 11 is often called the Hall of Faith, and it looks at the Old Testament saints and show us, shows us that they were saved by faith just as we are. And if you look at the list, that's fairly long. They're not perfect saints. Through our Genesis series, we see, we've seen the sins of Noah and Abraham, but not everyone else on there has a perfect track record. David raped a woman and murdered her husband. Samson broke his Nazarite vow. Jephthah sacrifices his daughter. We know their stories and we can see their blatant failings, and yet they made it into this hall of faith. How much more will we be in the same hall of faith, no matter what sin brings us and what we do?
if you're here or watching online and you're unsure of spiritual realities, I ask what might be the alternative for us? If we keep seeking our happy ending, if we keep seeking our hope and our joy in something else, won't it always disappoint us? If all there is is this material world, does it really matter if we end up finding our happy ending? Or is there something deeper inside of us that longs for eternity, that longs for this happily ever after? Friends, I tell you, it's only through Christ that we can find this happy ending. So how do we respond to this happy ending? What does this text call us to do? This love of the triune God should impact our relationships both horizontally and vertically. Horizontally with our brothers and sisters and vertically with God. Horizontally, the Holy Spirit invites us to fellowship in the Lord with those who call uh, each other brothers and sisters of Christ. The community of believers here at the local church and the church throughout the world this uh, Corinthian church, as I mentioned, was a church of disunity. And one of the primary talking points in both letters was a call for unity uh, in the church. And that's the unity we should strive for. That doesn't mean that there shouldn't be disagreements in the church or that we should all be cookie cutter in our beliefs and our opinions. What, does mean, what this does mean is that we should handle these disagreements with love, understanding, patience, and grace ourselves. It's not just you alone who was lavished by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It was all of us. The theologian James White had this to say, Grace is a divine gift that comes from a divine person, Jesus Christ. The love of God is also divine and full and comes from the Father. And fellowship, likewise, is a rich term full of meaning. The fact that the Spirit indwells all believers and provides the ground of our supernatural unity results in true Christian fellowship, a sharing that knows no bounds. We are united by more and powerful things than what divides us. During our first year of the Represence Initiative, our focus was having all of us understand the world from a biblical worldview, one not shaped by the news or social media, but by the scriptures themselves. We must realize this in our heads, but also in our hearts. That Christianity is neither the political left nor the political right, but a third-way walking worldview. No matter where you are on the political spectrum, brothers and sisters are going to disagree with you. However, our unity under Christ should always be in the forefront of our mind. And when we do have disagreements, we know that one day we'll forever be worshiping God in heaven together. There was a meme I saw on Facebook that said something to this effect. When Paul entered heaven... He was greeted by the cheers and applause of the saints he killed. That, my brothers and sisters, is the power of grace. That's the power of Christian unity given to us through the triune God. Now, vertically, as we look through, as we've looked through how the Father, Son, and Spirit love us, there's a charge given to us. Repent and believe in the God who loves you so much. Whether you've been a lifelong Christian or unsure whether God is real. We are continually called to go to God with our sin, with our struggles, with our lives. And we know this, that if you go to him, God will embrace you. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland examines Matthew 11, 29, 11, 29, where Jesus tells us to take my yoke upon you for I'm gentle and lowly of heart and you'll find rest. And in that book, he shows us how deep God's love for us. 
I really recommend that everyone in here read that book, whether you're new to Christian faith or more, uh, mature Christian. Another spoiler alert, I'm sorry, but I'm going to read you the last page of this book. In it, he says, quote, Go to him. All that means is open yourself up to God. Let him love you. The Christian life boils down to two steps. One, go to Jesus. Step two, see number one. Whatever is crumbling all around you in life, whenever you feel stuck, this remains, undeflectable. His heart is for you. The real you is gentle and lowly. So to go to him. That place in your life where you feel most defeated, he is there. He lives there, right there. His heart is for you. Not on the other side of it, but in that darkness. He's gentle and lowly. Your anguish is his home. Go to him. We see in Paul's benediction to the Corinthian church that this is the exact call. With all the problems and the issues going on in that church, it would have been easy for Paul to say, you know what, I'm throwing my hands in the air, figure this out on your own. Or you have too many problems, you guys can't be saved. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul instead calls the Corinthian church to remember that they were given the grace of their Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. This is something we're given to. So no matter where you are with your walk with God, remember his salvation and grace. Trust that the God who created the universe, that the same God who desires a personal relationship with you, and the Jesus that lived the life that you can never live and died the death you rightly, rightfully deserve in order to reconcile us to him. If this isn't the ultimate form of love, I don't know what is. Every day I'm blown away and astounded that the God in the universe could love a sinner like me. And some days it's harder to believe in the not, but that's why I lean into the promises of this benediction. So at the end of our worship service today, and for all future worship services, let's remember the powerful words declared each week, and listen to a benediction that fills us with the hope and confidence in the triune God who loves us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.